Hello, my name's Geoffrey White. I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of March. This sky guide and audio guide are available from our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au. For more information about the night sky, we also recommend that you purchase your copy of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. Now, for any night viewing activity, there's a fairly simple list of accessories or equipment that you should take with you outside to make your viewing not only effective but comfortable. Being March, it's still lovely and warm, but I think you still need to have a blanket to sit on, a pair of binoculars is always a bonus, and of course a pillow. Uh, And by the way, as I've also mentioned, you should have your copy of the Australasian Sky Guide. Well, not only that, you also need to be able to find your way around the night sky. In other words, you need to find your cardinal directions, north, east, south and west, But you also need to be able to find elevations or altitudes, so so many degrees above the horizon and so on. Uh, The good thing about March is, of course, that uh, the sun is setting almost due west, and certainly it is on the equinox. But for most of the month, as long as you're looking towards sunset, you're looking west. To your right will be north, to your left will be south, and directly behind you, of course, is east. But that's not how astronomers typically do it. You see, we like to start facing north and then we turn in a clockwise direction as seen from above and we go in in angles. So from north to east, we'd say that would have an azimuth of 90 degrees. Uh, Another 90 degrees, making a total of 180, would be south and another 90 to 270 would be west. Doesn't matter which way you look at it, whether it's just northeast, south, or west, or you use the incremental angles of azimuth. But we also need to use some angles above the horizon, and there's a fairly easy way of being able to do this. You see, it doesn't matter how old you are, because it's all in proportion. How big you are, again, because it's all in proportion. If you hold a clenched fist at arm's length, it's about 10 degrees of coverage. If you spread your fingers apart so that your pinky to your thumb is about as big as you can get it, it's about 20 degrees. And if you hold your pinky at arm's length, that's about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. Now, there's one other thing that we're going to rely on quite a lot when we're doing our tour of the sky, and that is perhaps one of the most important concepts in the universe, and that is imagination. Yeah, it's true. Mathematics and imagination probably the two most powerful tools in our repertoire, if you like. What I want you to do, before you go outside, just get a a child and your daughter or your son, niece, nephew, doesn't really matter. Just draw a very simple dot-to-dot stick figure. And I want you to look at that and not just see dots and some simple lines, but I want you to let your imagination go and see some vivid characters. Heroes, villains, mythical creatures, dragons, whatever. But we're going to use those, if you like, that you can see on your star map as a bit of a prompt for some of the typical characters that we expect to see, but of course cannot see. So what we're going to do for March is to start looking west just after sunset and turn ever so slightly to your right so we're looking towards the northwest. About 23 degrees, 
23 degrees. Ah, yes, that's right. I've just described an easy way of doing this. So about an outstretched hand span from pinky to thumb tip, plus a little bit more, uh, and that'll give you the general direction where we're looking. And you're looking at a V-shaped group of stars with one orange-reddish star at the top of the V. This is the setting constellation of Taurus the Bull. Now, immediately I'm sure most people have recognised they've heard this name before. Taurus, we think, perhaps is in fact uh, the oldest of all the constellations. We certainly think it goes back at least 4,000 years or more. And for over 2,000 years, it was actually home to something called the Vernal Equinox, but no longer. Uh, tricky astronomy, it changes from year to year, but ever so slightly. Uh, vernal Equinox, well, it comes from a couple of different words, and we use them modern, if you like, or they're old by our standards, but uh, the Latin words ver, meaning spring, and equinoctium, meaning equal night. So the vernal equinox, and this comes from the northern hemisphere, we're talking about the spring equinox. But for us in the south, of course, it's back the front and it's the autumn equinox. I know it's confusing, but oh well, we can't help history. Well, what's that got to do with Taurus? Well, thousands of years ago, uh, when civilizations started to spring up around that magnificent area between the Euphrates and the Tigris, Mesopotamia, this part of the sky was home to the vernal equinox, and people were no less skilled at observing than we are today, and they noticed this. So they said, hmm, here we have a part of the sky with a little imagination that may or may not have been assisted with the help of some red wine, looks a bit like a bull. So we'll call it a bull, and because this is the, the start of spring, the start of new life, if you like, we're going to make that, um, well, effectively the start of our tour around the sky. So it was considered to be, for a long time, the first of the zodiac constellations. Zodiac is just a term that means the circle of the animals. Although, as we all know now, uh, one of them at least is not an animal. Until the time of Julius Caesar's calendar reform, the new year actually began in March where we can see Taurus in roughly the same position, visible low in the west just after sunset. Indeed, the significance of this particular part of the sky was no less evident by the uh, also ancient Persian astronomers who gave letters of the alphabet to zodiac constellations. And guess which letter Taurus got? Yes, that's right, the letter A, and then B for Gemini, and so on and so on. So clearly this was somewhat universally regarded as the starting point. Now, some of the stories, well, some of those have been lost, uh, and they're a little confusing, but the story that most of us are familiar with is actually from the more modern, but nonetheless ancient Greeks, where Taurus represents the king of the gods, uh, Jupiter, Zeus, if you like, in the form of a bull. Yes, you see, he could change his shape into whatever he wanted to be. Fair enough, he was, after all, king of everything. And he fell in love with, or perhaps was smitten by, the beauty of the daughter of Agenor. I'm not sure if I've pronounced his name correctly. But anyway, Agenor had a daughter, and her name was Europa. So what Jupiter did was he changed himself into a beautiful white bull and mingled with the, the herd of bulls, or herd of cattle, I suppose. And he was able to coax Europa into climbing onto his back, at which point he carried her over the seas 
to the island of Crete. And such a famous story this is that ultimately the land that we now call Europe took her name. So Taurus is indeed a worthy starting point for our tour of the night sky. The other thing to remember about Taurus is, of course, well, bulls are a, a beast of burden. So these rather odd stories that we hear may have simply been based in practical purposes. Uh, cattle were incredibly useful then as they are now. So why not name a part of the sky after one of the most versatile and useful uh, creatures that we have? But basically all you're going to see is a V-shape. So look for that orange bright star uh, in Taurus called Aldebaran. Aldebaran, by the way, is one of what has been dubbed one of the four royal stars. And these are it's a very ancient idea, again dating back thousands of years to the time of the Babylonians. And they had four key stars. They're the brightest stars near the significant events in the sky, which are the two equinoxes and the two solstices. So starting off here with the vernal equinox, the nearest bright star is Aldebaran, uh, and of course it therefore became the first of the four royal stars. But really, look for the orange star at the head of a V-shaped group of stars, and you'll be able to make out, if you like, the head and then the long horns that make up Taurus the bull. It's really hard to, to see anything more than that, but uh, anyway... If you've got your map and you can see that, you're well on the way. Well, by the way, depending on your eyesight, you should be able to see from a very dark, clear location, maybe 2,000 stars on a clear night. It's really difficult to say to someone, oh, look, can you please remember the positions and the brightnesses of all 2,000 stars? So as I hinted at earlier, what people have done for a long time is actually make up some simple dot-to-dot diagrams, stick figures in the sky. And by remembering those, it's kind of like a signpost that helps you find your way around, and you can ignore the insignificant ones and just use the brighter ones. Now, we're not really sure who started doing this, but certainly in terms of Western science that we now seem to follow so closely, most of the ideas that we have have come to us uh, from Mesopotamia. There are some newer ones, but most of them date back a long time to that wonderful region. Perhaps the first person to put together a catalogue of these simple stick figures or constellations in the sky was the Roman citizen of Egypt nearly 2,000 years ago, Claudius Ptolemy. He devised a, a chart made up of 48 constellations. Now, we still have all of them today, but we've broken one of them up into smaller constellations as it was simply too big. People have been adding to this in a somewhat ad hoc way, and it was only completely finalised with borders, if you like, in 1930, when the smallest of all the constellations, the Southern Cross, officially came into existence. Now, it had been around, obviously, for a long, long time as an idea of a cross in the sky, in particular since uh, European sailors started venturing into the south in the 1500s, and they saw a symbol that looked a bit like a Christian cross. But uh, up until then, it was officially part of the much larger Centaurus. So 1930, everything has been mapped out, and we now have 88 areas of the sky that cover all stars. And I think the easiest way to remember these uh, constellations is they're just like a suburb in the sky. Anyway, 
So we've been having a look at the constellation of Taurus and the first of the four royal stars, Aldebaran. What I'd like you to do at this particular point in time is go up uh, about one open hand span, so that's about 20 degrees, and you'll actually come across another fairly bright orange-reddish-looking star. This is one of the more interesting red stars in the night sky, uh, primarily because of its rather unusual name. Its name has changed over the years, and there's lots of argument about it, including lots of historical argument about it, but these days we typically call this star Betelgeuse. It's also the brightest star, so it's called Alpha Orionis in the constellation of Orion the Hunter. This is a young but very large dying star. Throughout these podcasts, you'll hear myself and some of our other astronomers give you all sorts of different numbers, distances to stars, sizes of stars, brightness, and so on. The thing to remember is that these are not absolute. Uh, we have incredible spacecraft that have given us all sorts of spectacular accurate measurements these days, but there is still some debate on a lot of these distances. So please, you know, what we give we think is the best idea at the moment, but that can change pretty much any time. So at the moment we're looking high into the northwest or maybe slightly north by northwest, and we're looking for this very bright orange reddish looking star or when we say red we don't mean traffic light red either it's more of a golden orangey color and that is the star betelgeuse it's about 650 light years away and about a thousand times the size of the sun Ooh, so it's extremely big you see what you've got is a fairly young star that's coming toward the end of its life it's fairly massive uh, around about 10 to 20 times the size of the sun, and yet relatively young at less than 10 million years. Hold on. So 10 to 20 times the mass of the sun, less than 10 million years, already very large and red. Yes, the star is dying. And when it does eventually die, we're reasonably sure, though we can't guarantee it, that it will explode as a type 2 supernova. He's hoping that happens soon because it would be rather spectacular to see such a large nearby star explode. But again, we can't be sure about this. You see, some stars are bigger, some stars are smaller, some are close, some are far away. The view that you and I get of the night sky is rather two-dimensional. We have no idea just by looking at them how big the star is, how bright it is or how far away it is. So it can be rather confusing. Uh, especially when we start measuring the distances. Betelgeuse, 650 light years away, about, as I say, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,100 times the diameter of the sun. Well, don't forget to put that into perspective. Uh, just remember that the sun is about 114 times the diameter of the Earth. So, goodness gracious me, that is one seriously big star. The name itself... Betelgeuse. I know most of us have heard something like that in relation to a, a children's cartoon or indeed an old rather strange movie. But you see, it's a mispronunciation of its name that's been handed to us uh, throughout the years, through the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. We've basically picked up uh, an interpretation of the Arabic pronunciation. Now, it was something like uh, Abd al-Yaza. Uh, it's a very difficult name to pronounce, but it's been 
abused, if you like, or devolved and changed. And we now call it, as I've mentioned, Beetlejuice. But we believe it comes from uh, an old Arabic name meaning the hand of Al-Jaza, meaning the big man or the giant. But strangely, uh, it's been interpreted as being the armpit of the giant. And I think this is falling out of favour in terms of astronomical circles, but we still find printed reference to in older books that this star actually means armpit of the giant. Ew, not a particularly nice name, is it? Nonetheless, if you've found it, you're well on your way to finding one of the more famous objects in the sky, and that's a group of stars that Australians typically look at and refer to as the saucepan although most people refer to it as a hunter. And by the way, it hasn't always been as such. Some people have actually argued that Orion was, well, somewhat of a dimwit in the sky. You see, it's been suggested that he's quite dim because if he's a mighty hunter, he's pretty much, well, standing on a timid little rabbit uh, called Lepus the Hare, and he's chasing the Pleiades, which are often shown to represent a flock of doves. So what sort of mighty hunter steps on a hare and chases doves? Uh, Well, one who's pretty dumb. And that's been a suggestion that's been around, although, correspondingly, there's lots of ideas that he was, in fact, the mightiest of all the hunters, with a slight attitude problem that boasted at one particular time that he could kill any animal on the planet. Well, the ancient Greeks believed that the mother of the earth, Gaia, was not particularly happy about this idea or this boast, So she sent the giant scorpion, Scorpius, to attack and kill him, which it did. Uh, Other legends say that, well, Orion was so good at hunting that he would be hanging around with the goddess of the hunt, Artemis. Artemis's brother, Apollo, was not so keen on his godly sister uh, going out with a mere mortal, so he is the one who created the giant scorpion to attack and kill Orion the hunter. Whichever story it was, and there are different versions of this, ultimately what happened was that uh, the body of Orion was placed into the sky, as was that of the scorpion, but on directly opposite position, so that the two can never come together and fight again. But they keep an eye on each other as one sets, the other rises. Looking into Orion... It's fairly easy to see three stars in a row, very nicely placed that make up a perfect straight line. These stars traditionally represent the belt of Orion from which hangs his mighty sword. But for us in the southern hemisphere, the belt and the sword identify, if you like, Australians, Kiwis and South Africans because the three of us typically refer to that patch of stars as being a saucepan. Yes, that's right, no longer a mighty hunter, but a saucepan that you can find in the kitchen. What I want you to do is to look at the handle of the saucepan. And if you have a pair of binoculars, but this is quite tricky, you need to either put them onto a tripod or wedge them against the side of a building using a a pillow for a bit of support, you may be able to see that the middle star-like object of that handle is not a single star, but rather a little cloud. And the ancient word for cloud is nebula. So what you're looking at is, in fact, the birthplace of stars. It's called M42, or the Great Nebula in Orion. And time and time again, you'll find that astronomers give things fairly, well, dim 
classification names. M42 simply means it's the 42nd object in a catalogue developed by a man whose name began with M, and that was the Frenchman Charles Messier. This is truly a spectacular object. If you have a small telescope or even a small pair of binoculars, as long as you can mount them and hold them still, this is a beautiful object to look at. It'll look like a wispy, slightly greyish-greenish cloud of gas and dust. Once you've found Orion by tracing the position of Betelgeuse, the dying red star, the saucepan, the handle with the nebula M42, look a little bit higher and almost overhead, you'll see the brightest star in the night sky called Sirius the Dog Star. It is, in fact, perhaps one of the most important stars of them all, obviously apart from the sun. Not only is it the brightest star in the night sky, it's also one of the closest. Now, there are about seven which are indeed closer, but this is a, a lovely combination of being close and bright. It's only about twice the mass of the sun, but 25 times brighter. And at 8.6 light years away, it makes it the perfect combination for this brilliant, dazzling star that we can see. Oh, a light year. I've mentioned that now twice. A light year is simply the distance that light can travel in one year in the vacuum of space. Light travels enormously quickly at 300,000 kilometres per second. So simply multiply 300,000 by 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, 365 days in a year, and that will give you the distance that light travels in one year. Goodness me, it's a big, cumbersome number. But what you're looking at at 8.6 light years away, our brightest star in the night sky, Sirius. I'm sure you've heard that name before. Aha, of course. It is a ship that came to Australia as part of the first fleet and, of course, a, a character in that story about a young wizard boy. Yes, you know the one. But more importantly... This star was used by Egyptians thousands and thousands of years ago to work out the length of the year on average to be 365 and a quarter days in a process called heliacal rise. You see, they would watch the position of Sirius in relation to the morning sun. After Sirius was lost in the glare of the sun for around about 70 days, they would be watching for it in the morning, and that first chance that they had to see Sirius separated from the glare of the sun, the first time you do that, it's called heliacal rise. And by keeping accurate records year after year after year, they were able to work out the length of the year to 365 and a quarter days. To actually improve on that accuracy that the Egyptians were able to do, it took another few thousand years to come up with the exact uh, measurements that we have today. So rather impressive, I think. So stars, as I hope you're getting to see, are not only pretty, but they're also useful. They act as a marker in the sky. We can use them to work out time of year. We can use them to work out our cardinal directions. Uh, so they're beautiful and useful. Now that we've had a look at Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, what I want you to do is, well, actually drop down towards the north a little. We're going to go past another of these zodiac 
constellations, which unfortunately is not a very easy one to see. Uh, that is the twins of Gemini. This represents the youths Castor and Pollux that went on the grand adventure with Jason and the other Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. But it's not a very easy constellation to see, apart from the two brightest stars. And nonetheless, with the map in your sky guide, and again, lots of imagination, you may just be able to pick out uh, some upside-down twins holding hands. We're going to skip past perhaps the most difficult of all the zodiac constellations to see, and that is Cancer the Crab. A very faint, not so easily seen constellation, I'm afraid. But the next one over, as we head towards the east, is actually another very important constellation. And that is, well, let's see if we can figure it out. What I want you to do is to look for a relatively bright star in this portion of the sky, although we've got to be careful of any planets that may be there at the moment. Those pesky wanderers, or planetea as they used to be called, can actually confuse us just somewhat. But the brightest star in this part of the sky at the moment is the second of our four royal stars. It's called Regulus, and it marked the position, or it's the brightest star near the summer solstice uh, many thousands of years ago, but of course no longer. If you look at that star, what we're going to look for now is a group of stars that from the southern hemisphere looks a little bit like an upside-down question mark. This upside-down question mark is actually the, the fiery mane and chest of Leo the Lion, perhaps one of the oldest and most important of all the ancient zodiac constellations, and indeed of all constellations. Leo was thought to represent at one point in time the lions that used to leave the desert looking for water around the time that the Nile would flood. You see, the Nile used to flood on a very regular basis and the Egyptians were quite skilled at using the positions of the stars to work out when this was due to happen. They also got to learn, of course, by patterns year after year that lions would be looking for water and slow-moving other animals to eat at this time. So the position of Leo was actually quite important. From the more modern, but again ancient Greeks, Leo was the famous constellation that was killed by Hercules as part of his 12 labours and was eventually put into the sky. But the main thing is, as long as you can see an upside down question mark, you're well on the way to being able to see Leo. Continue towards the east, or in fact as we've been going so far, towards your right, and about one open hand span away, you'll be able to see the constellation, or it's a little hard to see, but there's not much bright around it, uh, Corvus the Crow. Do you know what? When I look at this group of stars, I don't see anything that looks like a crow at all. I can't help but see, as we're now looking towards the east, a group of stars that looks, well, like a shopping trolley. Hmm. According to the ancients, however, Corvus was a bird, and it was a bird that had the ability to talk to humans. But after one particularly unsuccessful mission that was sent on by the god Apollo, who lost his temper, uh, he turned the, the bird, he changed its colour to make it black, as we see today, and took away its ability to speak. So it was banished into the sky, along with the constellations of Crater the Cup and Hydra the Snake. But look at it now, so we're looking almost due east, you might just be able to pick out the brightest star underneath in the constellation of Virgo, called Spica. 
but Corvus looks like a shopping trolley. Look, I hope it doesn't ever become popular nature to call it the shopping trolley. These constellations have been around for thousands of years. But this raises an interesting point. They were named after things that were important or common in the time of the people that saw them. Just as today we have our mobile smartphones, our tablet computers, our cars and aeroplanes and things like that. But hopefully we'll stick to the older pictures in the sky. As we leave Corvus in the east, we're going around to your right again, and we're heading towards the southeast. Reasonably low, but making its way higher up into the sky, you'll find the smallest of all 88 constellations. Some would argue it's the most beautiful. Some would argue it's the most famous. Certainly in the Southern Hemisphere, we are somewhat biased. After all, it's on our flag here in Australia. We're looking at the group of stars known now as the Southern Cross. This group of stars is small and bright. It has three of the top 30 bright stars in the night sky, and it now makes up the smallest area in the sky after the 1930 breakup, if you like, of the sky by the International Astronomical Union. Uh, across the ditch, our cousins in New Zealand actually refer to this group of stars as Tapanga, the boat anchor. But to the various indigenous communities across this land, the Southern Cross has an incredible diversity of stories and meanings. For example, our curator at the Powerhouse Museum, James Wilson Miller, has told us of the story that comes from the Murray people up towards the top of New South Wales and in the bottom of southeast Queensland. And it relates around, well, the first person to ever die. You see, this story of the Southern Cross tells us that long, long ago, there was a great sky spirit called Biomet who walked the earth and he made three people, two men and one woman. And when he saw that they were alive, he gave them an idea. He told them what they could eat and what they couldn't eat and he said they had to stick to that. He then left for his home in the sky. And for a long time, everything went swimmingly well. But then came a big dry spell and nearly all the plants and animals died out. They got so hungry that one of the men killed a small kangaroo rat, cooked it, and gave some of it to the woman, and she ate it. They offered some to the other man, but he refused because he knew what Baime had told them, what things you can and can't eat. He got so upset he started to walk away. The man and the woman that were eating stayed where they were and continued to eat, and then they thought they'd better go and look for their companion. So they followed him off, and they walked for a long, long time, over the sandy hills and the pebbly ground, until they found him at the edge of a coolabar plain near the side of a great river. He was so weak from hunger, but he wouldn't have eaten the kangaroo rat. He kept walking. He kept walking and walking till he came to the side of a big gum tree, and he fell to the ground dead. As the man and woman approached, they yelled out to him, but they saw the huge black figure with fiery eyes right next to him. In fact, it lifted up the dead man's body and dropped it into the hollow of a big tree. There was then a large crack of thunder, and they fell to the ground, startled and stunned. When they looked up, they saw the black figure lifting the tree up towards the sky. They couldn't see their friend anymore, all they could see were the fiery eyes of the Yowie spirit carrying the tree up into the sky. There was also a very loud screech of some Muyi, 
some cockatoos that were flying after the tree, and they called out after the tree as it went higher and higher into the sky. At last, the tree planted itself near the edge of the Milky Way, where all the other spirits live in the sky, and then it disappeared from sight. All they could see now were the four fiery eyes shining out, two eyes of the Yowie, the spirit of death had carried him up into the sky, and the two eyes of the man who died. In fact, he was the first man to die. The Mui, or cockatoos, are chasing after the tree in the sky, trying to get back to their tree. And they are, of course, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the two bright pointers that we see pointing towards the Southern Cross. If we wait a few hours, the Southern Cross, which is presently quite low in the southeast, it'll rotate around because throughout the night and throughout the seasons, it does a full rotation of 360 degrees. So in a few more hours from now, it'll be nice and highly placed and upright, looking more like a traditional Christian cross. And I think you'll be able to see the eyes of the Yowie and that poor man who was the first person to die. When you look at the Southern Cross, as I mentioned earlier on, you'll see that the stars are different brightnesses, but they all look like they're the same distances, but they're not. You see, the closest star to the Southern Cross is Gamma Crucis, and that's the one at the uh, top of the cross as we're looking at it in the traditional form, if you like, and that's about 88 light years away, whereas the second brightest star, Beta Crucis, uh, is about 525 light years away. Don't forget that a light year is simply the distance that light travels in one year. Wrapped around the Southern Cross, although not easily seen at the moment, is the fairly large constellation of Centaurus, half man, half horse. I think it would be best at this particular stage to leave Centaurus for another month or two until it gets slightly higher up in the south and the southeast. High in the south, you'll be able to see the second brightest star in the night sky, and that is Canopus. Canopus is significantly naturally brighter than the brightest star I mentioned earlier, Sirius the Dog Star. So how come it's only the second brightest star? Aha! As we mentioned earlier, the distances. Stars are at different distances. Sirius is only 8.6 light years away, whereas Canopus is a lot further at about 310 light years away. It's also very, very bright. 20,000 times brighter than the sun. Even though it's a lot brighter, that extra distance means we only see it as the second brightest star in the night sky. As you go from the Southern Cross high towards Canopus, you're actually entering a part of the sky that used to be referred to as Argo Navis, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. This is a particularly intriguing story. You see, more constellations, I think, relate back to this story than any other. The constellation was deemed to be too big, however, and it's now been broken up into four smaller constellations, Carina the keel, Puppus the deck, Pixis the compass, and Vela the sails. But this whole area from uh, the Southern Cross to Canopus is truly gorgeous. Position your binoculars so that you've got a nice steady view, whether you do that by resting your elbows onto a pillow or you put your binoculars onto a tripod, doesn't really matter. But scan this part of the sky because there is so much to be seen. You've got, of course, the, the very dense, bright part of the Milky Way, the river in the sky, but you also have some clusters, some 
open clusters, which are young stars formed at the same time. And you also have a rather intriguing cataclysmic variable star. Egads, what's a cataclysmic variable star? A star that changes its brightness over a regular period of time. This particular star, Eta Carina, is dying. It is indeed a young star. It's already coming to the end of its life. The intriguing thing is that the Burong indigenous people, who are part of the Wagera language group in the northwest of Victoria, observe this star brighten dramatically from a fairly ordinary third to fourth magnitude star in the early 1840s to become the second brightest star in the night sky by 1843 and then fade from brightness by the end of the decade. Now, what these people did was absolutely amazing. They incorporated this variable star into their sky law and they named the star Eta Carina Kologawarik Wa. Kologawarik Wa is the wife of Wa which most of us, I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, know by its more common name of Canopus. So this is a very good example of how indigenous peoples from around the world observe what happens in their environment and incorporate that into their sky law. Now that we've finished facing south, what we're going to do is swing around a little bit towards the southwest, and there's another fairly bright star. It's actually the tenth brightest star in the night sky called Achenar, and it's the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus, the river. Now, to some indigenous communities, Achenar, along with Canopus, represent the cooking fires of some celestial brothers that uh, are represented by the large and the small Magellanic clouds. If you're away from the city and there's no moon in the sky, they're fairly obvious. They just look like patches of Milky Way that have, well, broken off and drifted away. But what in fact they are are two very close nearby galaxies, the large and small clouds of Magellan, completely separate galaxies to us, which the Milky Way is presently in the process of, well, there's no way to be politically correct or nice about it, cannibalising. That's right. Uh, We're the local bully on the block and we're drawing these two smaller satellite galaxies toward us and in the next few hundred million years or so uh, they will actually be disrupted, if you like, and become part of our own galaxy. Kind of cool, huh? Uh, Don't worry about it. When galaxies merge, there's quite often, probably, no stellar collisions. Stars aren't going to go banging to each other and causing the end of days or anything like that. Um, galaxies pass through each other all the time and where it does have a fairly disruptive effect on them the stars don't actually bang into each other. After looking at the clouds of Magellan especially if you're in a lovely dark location as we head back around towards the west we're pretty much back to where we started. Taurus is now even further down in the northwest, as is Orion and Sirius. So we've been looking at the stars for quite some time. Special events for March 2013, starting with the phases of the moon. Tuesday the 5th of March will be the last quarter at 8.53am. Tuesday the 12th of March, new moon at 6.51am. Wednesday the 20th of March, first quarter at 4.27am. 
and the full moon will be on Wednesday the 27th of March at 8.27pm. The autumn equinox occurs on Wednesday the 20th of March at 10.02pm. Uh, this is when the Sun crosses the celestial equator from the southern hemisphere back into the northern hemisphere, so it's marking the start of autumn for us. Now some people of course use this as a, a time to change seasons, but us Aussies are more logical and change on the first of the month. It's on the equinox you should be getting roughly equal amounts of night and day, but not quite equal, because uh, daylight is of course when the first tip of the sun comes up over the horizon and twilight begins as the last tip disappears below the western horizon. So on the 20th we are actually going to have 12 hours and 9 minutes of daylight. March for planets is actually still quite nice. We have Jupiter low in the northwest in the constellation of Taurus and close to the bright star Aldebaran. It will be setting by about 11.45pm early in the month, but towards the end that will drift back to about 10pm. On the 18th of March, just after sunset, the 38% crescent moon and Jupiter will be just 4 degrees apart, so well worth a look. The spectacular planet Saturn will spend the month in the constellation of Libra. At the start of the month it will be rising around 10pm, and that will drift back to about 8pm by the end of the month. In the early mornings, Mercury will make its customary very brief appearance in the second week of March onwards in the constellation of Aquarius, though you will need a very clear view towards the east to be able to catch it. By mid-month it is rising by about 5.30am and interestingly it will be about 3 degrees away from the very dim planet Neptune, which is of course the most distant planet in our solar system. If you have a pair of binoculars and you can put them onto a, a mount, make sure you lock onto Mercury and it'll have a slightly yellowish uh, tinge to it and a little bit higher uh, you may be able to see very dimly a little bluish green spot which of course is the planet Neptune. It'll be very difficult to see but if you've got good eyesight and a nice clear view towards the east it's well worth a try. For the first few days of the month you may also be able to catch a peak of Venus rising ahead of the Sun. It will be in the constellation of Aquarius, but heading towards a non-transit superior conjunction on the 28th of March, where effectively it simply disappears behind the Sun. So of course we won't be able to see it during that time. One of the great unknown events for 2013 at this early stage is the appearance of a comet. Everybody loves to see them, but they're extraordinarily difficult to predict way in advance. At the moment, however, it looks as though we are going to get a good comet in 2013, especially in March, and that is Comet Panstars. Not a particularly exciting name, and most people expect a comet to be named after the person that's found it. But when there's a large team involved, it's probably easy to name it after the instrument or the team. So this particular one is named Panstars, which stands for Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. It's a 1.8 metre prototype telescope on top of a volcano in Hawaii. And the comet was found in 2011, and it looks surprisingly bright, considering how far away it was from the sun. This can be a bit of a, a red herring, because it depends on the volatile gases that may be outgassing as it comes closer to the sun, and we don't know if it's a, a repeat visitor. 
So early indications were that it was going to be quite good, but we still don't know at this late stage how bright it will be. Nonetheless, uh, however bright it's going to be, it'll be at its brightest in that period from March the 8th through to the 12th. Uh, JPL NASA has indicated that it may be around about magnitude minus 0.5, which is pretty bright for a comet, so everyone's looking forward to that. The view from the southern hemisphere will be quite difficult. It'll be very low uh, in the west just after sunset at this time of year. And if there is a tail, it'll probably look like it's standing straight up. So get away from the city, look towards the west immediately after sunset, and hopefully you can see that wispy, hairy comet tail. On the 14th of March, uh, and just 7 degrees above the horizon, you'll see a very young crescent moon, uh, with the comet ever so slightly towards the north from there, or to your right if you're looking towards the west. Again, we can't be sure on how bright it's going to be, but it's well worth a try. So have a look for Comet Panstars in the early parts of March 2013. My name's Geoffrey Wyatt, I'm the Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory and I hope you've enjoyed your tour of the night sky for March 2013. Don't forget that you can download your podcast uh, from the iTunes Store or from our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au and of course you can purchase your uh, hard copy of the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom, also from Powerhouse Publishing and Major Bookstores. Thank you.